Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. The festive edition, a light-hearted look at COVID, Brexit and all the other relaxing issues whirling over our heads in this mad week of Christmas and, you know, everything is completely balmy. Any reasoned leader would look at the chaos around at the moment and delay Brexit. Uh, That is one thing, theoretically, in the power of a Prime Minister. I know it's tricky because with a wholly misjudged swagger and machismo at the beginning, Johnson put into law that uh, the extension would end on uh, December the 31st, thinking that would add to his muscularity in this negotiation. It's just causing mayhem and there are other logistical problems but it could be done with clear-minded leadership but reason isn't playing any part at all in British politics at the moment and so as we kind of await Christmas Day there is Brexit and Covid coming together and creating chaos of all kinds. Anyway you'll have been up to your heads in Covid and Brexit and rearranging Christmas plans and looking at queues of lorries and wondering whether you'll be able to get that fresh cauliflower that plays such an important part on Christmas Day or perhaps Boxing Day. So I thought we'd do something slightly different, though there will be connections with all these epic dramas making this a freakish Christmas. The freakish, of course, since wartime. And it's based around one of your brilliant emails. And this one's from Tony Ahmet from Solihull. And Tony says, Hi, Steve, continuing to love the podcast, I would like to put forward a suggestion or idea for the podcast, which I'd like you to consider. And it's this. As you've been around politics and politicians for so many years, again, it makes me feel about 90. I'm a mere youth in this game, but I do like looking back and putting things into context because it's only um, when you contextualise that things begin to make sense. It's something John Burt tried to do at the BBC, but even though he was seen as a control freak, couldn't really do it. He always used to say, context is the key. That's what the BBC can do place things into a wider context but on the whole he failed in that particular mission and for some in the BBC it seems that 1997 is the furthest bit of contextualizing they can do and the center ground is 1997 or Cameron and so on whatever you think of Blair in 97 or Cameron the center ground is far too ill-defined for that to be a useful bit of contextualising. Anyway, so to return to Tony's email, as you've been around politics and politicians for so many years, yeah, 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 I would love to hear some of your personal, serious, light-hearted, amusing, embarrassing moments. Uh, You could invite questions on this theme from the listeners too. It would be good fun. Well, this is the festive edition. I'm really up for this today. Here are a couple of my openers. Which leader or politician you've ever interviewed has been the most memorable and why? And then, if you could pick one interview, TV or radio, that was carried out by another political journalist, which one would it be and why? 
Now, these are great questions for a festive uh, podcast, so thank you, Tony. But you're right, uh, maybe we, there should be a bit more of this. Me looking back at my long, long career in politics, political journalism, now I'm 95 years old. Yeah, that's that's good. But to be precise, it has got me thinking, you're two openers. Could I begin with TV or radio interview that was carried out by another political journalist. Uh, This one will confirm the view that I'm about 95, because it does go back a bit. But it's the interview that made the most impact on me at the time, and I can still vividly recall, and it's highly relevant to now, even though it was carried out many, many decades ago. The interview that has made most impact on me, was one carried out by Brian Walden, who presented the ITV programme Weekend World. And the interview was in the spring of 1981. And the interviewee was Tony Benn. Now, I'll tell you about the substance of the interview in a moment, why it made an impact, why it's still highly topical. But also, I want to talk about the four The interview lasted, I think, for 50 minutes, maybe a full hour. Weekend World went out on ITV, and they allowed interviews to breathe. And this has gone completely out of fashion. Uh, The BBC did, too, in that era, or certainly in the 70s. I I mentioned it before, I think, or I certainly did at the uh, King's Place show the other day that was streamed. They did a kind of like a live 50-minute panorama with one interviewee, Thatcher, or a debate between Tony Benn and Roy Jenkins on Europe and things like that. They wouldn't dream of doing that now. They'd put a hostile audience in to scream provocative anger at a whole range of guests and the thing would last half an hour and no theme would be covered for more than a minute. But then, and ITV just wouldn't give the space for politics at all these days, but then they had an hour sometimes. And as a result, you learnt quite a lot about the interviewee, inevitably. There were flaws in the weekend world approach of that era. It was overproduced, and they always had a thesis that uh, producers had come up with at some meeting earlier in the week that had to be pursued throughout the whole interview. Matthew Paris took over from Brian Walden. In his memoir, he wrote that quite often Paris would miss fantastic news stories and interesting angles because someone in his earpiece was saying, ask again about industrial strategy or whatever thesis they had choreographed for the interview. So it suffered from being overproduced, these interviews that lasted for a long time. But sometimes they were gold dust and revealing. And this one with Tony Benn in 1981 stood out for me. I, I hasten to add, I was I was young. I think I was a student or um, maybe in the sixth form or something at the time. But Ben had just decided that he was going to stand for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party. Michael Foote was leader, already struggling. Dennis Healy was the deputy leader. And it was the first time an election was going to take place under the new electoral college. MPs no longer choosing who would be leader and, in effect, deputy leader. 
and it was a hugely contentious decision. Michael Foote was apoplectic with Tony Benn. Most Labour MPs were fuming with him. He was being slaughtered in the newspapers for his recklessness. And the essence of his pitch was accountability, his great democratic theme. Who was accountable to whom? And his argument was that in the context of Labour, the leadership should be accountable to the members. And in the context of Europe, he was a fervent opponent of the then common market because he saw no clear lines of accountability in the decisions being made in Europe that were then being imposed, as he saw it, on the British electorate. And what was so interesting about this interview, well, there were many things, was first of all, I was impressed watching just how calm Ben was. He was under huge pressure at the time, as I say, being fumed over by many parts of the Labour Party and just about all of the media. And yet he was good-humoured and calm. And that was, of course, two huge strengths of his, as it is in any politician. You don't see as much of it these days, that combination of calmness and humour. It used to disarm Labour leaders who were also, not just Michael Foote, but others, used to get furious with Ben and summon him in to say, you know, why did you vote against government policy at the NEC? You're a member of the cabinet. And he would be utterly charming to them and funny. And Marcia Williams, Harold Wilson's close mate, Wilson despised Ben by the end, was in despair over him. Marcia Williams always liked him. He was one of her favourites because of that combination. He was also very articulate. And what made this exchange so compelling was Brian Walden by then had moved from being this former Labour MP to being a great admirer of Thatcher's. This was 81. He supported the economic policies of Thatcherism and, and much else, actually, at this point. And yet you could see Walden had a respect for Ben. They were both brilliant orators. Walden was a surprisingly good orator uh, in the Ben League. Surprising because he had a speech defect. His views were not those that are were likely to arouse a sort of evangelical response, as you can do if you're Enoch Powell on the right or Tony Benn on the left. He was sort of a centrist Labour MP. I don't like the term centre, but you know what I mean. Yet he was a compelling speaker. So the two of them were fascinating to watch. And Warden pro Ben again and again about the democratic flaws as Warden saw it in Ben's approach to accountability. And one of his main themes was that Ben was bypassing the wider electorate in giving so much power to Labour Party members who were unrepresentative of the wider electorate. And Ben very calmly argued that general elections, local elections, other elections were where the ultimate accountability lay and that even though the Labour Party would go through these internal reforms, it would stand or fall 
in the wider electorate and therefore he had a purer form of democratic vibrancy than Walden did. And, you know, it might sound, my kind of summary of it might sound quite dry, but it was a very interesting exploration of this theme. And because he wasn't just dismissed, Ben, by Walden, as some contemporary interviewers would do as a sort of extremist nutter uh, trying to catch him out, but actually to explore the merits of the arguments and where the flaws lie, it was really interesting. And the reason it remains interesting to this very day is because in one of those remarkable twists, those arguments are more potent in the Tory party now than anywhere else. So Johnson and his approach to Brexit is determined partly by the power of the ERG group, you know, the hardline Brexiteers in Parliament, but also the wider membership, who are now in the Tory party, the equivalent really of Nigel Farage's old Brexit party. That is where a lot of the party members appear to be. But in this era, they have much more power over leaders than they used to do. They elect them. Johnson was elected by this sort of Brexity hardline membership. And the membership therefore have a hold in precisely the way Tony Benn envisaged with Labour. And one of the reasons Johnson, who hasn't really got firm opinions on things like Britain's membership of the European Union, he famously wrote a article in favour of staying in and another one in favour of leaving before he made up his mind. He has become a firm advocate of a hard Brexit, whether it's in the form of a deal or no deal, and by the time you hear this, we might know which of those it is. It doesn't really matter what it does. A deal is a lot better than no deal under any circumstances, but it will still be bad and thin. And one of the reasons he's opted for that is the dynamic of the membership holding leaders to account. And the reason why people like Sunak, the apparently mighty chancellor, are silent on the calamitous impact already of Johnson's approach to Brexit. I know Sunak's been a Brexiteer all the way through, but he's in that treasury. He knows how calamitous this endless brinkmanship has been and how calamitous a no deal would be or would have been if you're listening to this and a deal has been announced. But he'll also know about the serious implications of a thin deal. The reason he has been silent in public and also in private is that he wants to be the next leader and prime minister. And therefore he has to keep in with the party membership. Exactly as Tony Benn envisaged. And the arguments all of these people deploy against Europe is all about accountability and parliamentary sovereignty. Precisely the arguments Tony Benn was arguing in his interview with Brian Walden in 1981, because they also looked at um, matters to do with Europe in the accountability discussion. And at the time, the Conservatives were portraying Benn as Stalin, and all the rest of it, and so were many in the Labour Party. And yet they now espouse 
Benite ideas about sovereignty and accountability. So that interview from 81 was so interesting in terms of the dynamic between the two, Walden and Ben, but also in its timelessness. Ben is one of those whose ideas were dismissed at the time, but have acquired potency over the decades. And although, of course, he is far removed, both in personality and in ideas, to Gove Johnson, the ERG group, on many fronts, there is this echo in terms of a view about accountability. And in a way, I remember listening as a teenager to that interview, watching it, and finding Ben's arguments far more convincing than many of his critics. But of course, I'm now deeply aware of the flaws. If you are held to account by a party membership, for sure, that can at times break the instinctive caution of a Labour government, its instinctive neurotic defensiveness. But you do become beholden to a group who are, to some extent, unrepresentative of a wider electorate. And we are now stuck with a Conservative government which represents its membership with a kind of passion, but the rest of us are excluded in this dance of death with Brexit and other issues. So that's one obvious flaw. The other one is with Europe. I've never quite understood the arguments about Europe accountability. I do in theory, and it's a good argument in theory against the European Union, that democratic governments should be held accountable for policy within their electorates. And sometimes it goes badly wrong. And the single currency was, in some respects, a leap too far. So you get this situation where a Greek government is elected on a policy that contradicts their obligations within the European Union if they want to stay in the single currency. How do you resolve that conundrum? Who is accountable to, to whom? Is it the Greek voters electing a Greek government wanting to spend more money and defy the European Union? Or is it the European Union saying to the Greek government, if you want to stay in the single currency, you have to abide by what we say, not what you stood on in an election? Now, at moments like that, you can become Benite very quickly. But on the whole, the European Union is, I mean, I, I don't know why people get so worked up about it either way. It's just quite a sensible way of doing trade and business, especially if, in Britain's case, you were lucky enough to opt out of the euro. And that is simply that elected governments have decided together to work this single market, and you have various lines of accountability to manage that single market. The heads of government, in the end, decide collectively what form it will take, and they will then have to justify it to their own electorates. It's not, it is not as perverse as so many have made out. But anyway, at the time, I found the Ben demeanour uh, rather interesting, this calm, good-humoured, articulate figure. And the exchange with Walden persistently challenging, but in a way 
that conveyed his own fascination and curiosity with this figure. What you tend to get now is an interviewer thinking, in some cases, right, I'm going to show this person, I'm going to show the viewers how tough I am and all the rest of it. It's me, me, me. Less curiosity, more about, oh, we're going to catch this person out and in doing so, we're holding him or her to account and they're not, really. So there we go. I mean, what what an inspirational suggestion. The other question was about a memorable interviews I've carried out in my 90 years of um, uh, meeting politicians. And I suppose the most memorable for me were the period I had a a big call to make. I, I was BBC political correspondent. But in 1996, the New Statesman had a huge input of money, a new editor, Ian Hargreaves, who I knew he had been editor of the BBC News and Current Affairs for a few years. Um, And I got on with him really well then. And uh, then he went off to, I think, be deputy editor of the FT, editor of The Independent. But anyway, he, he became editor of the New Statesman. And I'd started writing whilst at the BBC columns. In fact, the first one I ever did was the front cover story for the new no not the new statesman the spectator it was a joint cover with boris johnson analyzing and dissecting labor's kind of famous dividing lines at the time it was a very clever device those dividing lines anyway got me into all kinds of trouble you can't really write in an interesting way whilst being at the bbc you know the bbc the constraints are really tough rightly so And those who do try and write whilst being at the BBC, you can see the agonies as they try and push a point, but not very far. Anyway, this is a long story. To cut it short, I decided to go for the New Statesman political editor job with Ian Hargreaves as editor. And this was in 1996, yeah, the summer before the 97 election. And so there was a kind of year of the build-up to that election and uh, each week Ian Hargreaves asked me to interview one of the kind of key Labour figures Tony Blair two or three times I did an interview some of you might even remember it made huge waves at the time with Claire Short she was in the shadow cabinet she had just been moved and she was unhappy at the portfolio change and it was the most interesting and candid exchange. Most of the shadow cabinet were terrified of saying anything. Such was the hold that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and Peter Mandelson had over them all and Alistair Campbell. But she went for what she called the people in the dark, spinning in various ways. And it was just about the only example of public dissent in that whole period. So that was interesting and dealing with the response and all of that. She went them full throttle and that I think was in the summer of 1996 it must have been soon after I started but I think the interviews with Blair at that period were really interesting I remember doing one with Ian Hargreaves in his office and it was interesting it was at the height of his friendship with Paddy Ashdown the leader of the Liberal Democrats and the key binding force really was the hope on Ashdown's part that Blair would introduce electoral reform. And we asked him, it was a wide-ranging interview, it was July 96, I think, and we asked him, we were exploring electoral reform, and I could tell, just feel, his scepticism. 
And I just sort of casually said to him, do you personally, we explored the, the flaws of it, do you personally support electoral reform? And he very uncharacteristically lapsed for a second and said no. Anyway, all hell broke loose. Paddy Ashdown was on the phone to him and did an interview where he blamed me for the exchange, which of course is the familiar device. But they were very interesting periods because there was this sense of change in the air. Labour had been out of power for 18 years. And although they were way ahead in the polls, you could detect caution, neurosis, uh, the tensions between Blair and Brown that were to come up afterwards. But it was a very kind of privileged place to be at that time because we got complete access and spoke to them all. And it gave you a sense, really, we all knew they were going to win, a sense of what would happen next and the form it would take. So there we go. Anyway, you did ask me, and I've done it, and I know I'm 95. It's the Christmas week. We're we're kind of diverting a bit from the normal uh, light-hearted look at Brexit, COVID, and Johnson, and Starmer. But funnily enough, one of your brilliant questions this week uh, relates to the very topic we've been talking about. Joe, he he said stick to Joe because he knows he will get uh, quite a lot from this. Oh, by the way, he said in an earlier email that, you know, you will tell me what you're doing while you're listening. And most of you are rowing or running or kind of doing the long jump. But he mentioned he was uh, doing the laundry. And I said, well, that's a bit lazy compared to the athletic audience we have. So he's written in to say, I don't think you appreciate how strenuous doing the laundry is for me. My two young children generate a prodigious amount of clothes with paint, felt tip, glitter, grass, mud, as well as pasta sauce. I do apologise. That is the equivalent of running 10k. There's no doubt about it. Anyway, Joe makes an interesting point, and in a way, <laughs> this relates directly, funnily enough, and coincidentally to that Tony Bent interview. He wonders whether Labour is the internal processes are almost too democratic and that they result in leaders having spent so much time managing internal battles, discussing motions, more specifically holding elections. I'm constantly amazed at the number of ballots. He's obviously a member. I'm asked to participate in each year. NEC, convention committee, treasurer, representative for this, representative for that. All of these generate acrimony, division and disappointment when energy should be focused on preparing for the only role that matters, a general election. Yeah, well, you've asked me just say Joe because you don't want to get abuse from people who approve of all of those procedures. But I, I can't hide under anonymity and I'm going to agree with you. Because although, as I said earlier, Tony Benn brilliantly put the case for these layers of accountability... And I understood the context in which he did it, the kind of disappointments in some respects with the 70s Labour government, although Tony Benn didn't acknowledge the wider context of that government, which was that it had no overall majority and was dealing with an economic nightmare. Yeah, I agree. All these procedures encourage an insularity, an inward-looking approach as if somehow if you can manage all of that, it becomes an end in itself. And the wider electorate are a kind of peripheral issue. 
So I kind of do agree that the consequence of this focus on accountability has been that. I mean, Starmer's got into a, a mess with the Corbyn issue and the um, originally a suspension from the party and then the uh, suspension of the whip. But I think that too is an example where a leader thinks if I display a kind of machismo internally, I will be more widely respected externally. Whereas I think externally, voters tend to engage more when leaders are talking about issues that concern them. I know that's a contentious view. But yeah, uh, and there's a good one from Paul Cooper, who, yeah, sort of quotes from the Resolution Foundation. By the way, the Resolution Foundation is having a good time. They're widely reported, unlike a lot of these think tanks, from January 2017. It's becoming clearer by the day that working families will be forced to pay for a Tory Brexit that favours the rich and not the rest of us, as our country faces its biggest rise in inequality since the Thatcher era. And he asked more widely about why Thatcherism retains such potency. And it certainly did, Paul, up until very recently, but only one part of the Brexit gang are doing it for Thatcherite reasons. There are definitely some who see it as a means by which you can turbocharge Thatcherism, that the only way Britain will survive as this isolated island will be to become much more Thatcherite still, further tax cuts to attract businesses in and all the rest of it, deregulated labour market even more than it is already, and so on. But when you think about the theoretical, and I agree it's only theoretical, Johnson agenda of levelling up and the degree of state intervention that will require even to do it in a small way and therefore keep those seats or try to keep those seats he won in the north of England, that's at odds with that turbocharged Thatcherism. And Theresa May's language, she never carried it out because she got wholly diverted by Brexit, was different from Thatcherism, that it's time to focus on the good that government can do. And these kind of changes tend to come from Tory governments because they are more self-confident than Labour governments. But there has been a change since Cameron and Osborne in language in the two Tory governments that have followed the Cameron-Osborne era, uh, not in policy, and maybe there won't be in policy, but the change is there. Sunak, who is an absolute kind of Osborne-style economic Thatcherite, in his budget last March was very interesting. He put a Keynesian case saying, we're going to borrow more and spend more because that will lead to economic growth. Now, I don't think he believed that. I think he was still then heavily under the power of number 10 and Dominic Cummings. But anyway, there is a change of language, which I think indicates the first move away from Thatcherism from within the Tory party. And that's where the change will come. But it is remarkable that she and her ideas held sway for so long. If you look at other prime ministers, even including Attlee, although that Labour government did hold sway to some extent in the 50s and 60s, long afterwards. But most prime ministers, people didn't need to reflect on what Wilson was thinking as they made their moves after Wilson had left office. The same to some extent with Tony Blair. I mean, David Cameron thought he was copying Tony Blair, but he was way 
to the right of him in economic policy and turbocharge public service reform in a way that even I think Blair would not have done. But anyway, all of that is far removed from this curious, well, Johnson hasn't got a fixed philosophy, it's about himself, but there is a shift, I think, away from Thatcherism that we are seeing. Now, it might revert back post-Brexit, and the economy totters horribly, and they might try another turbocharged Thatcherism, but if they do, they will lose those seats in the red wall, because there will be no levelling up. So, well, What interesting times ahead in 2021 could be absolutely nightmarish, actually, but it's going to be interesting. And so we've got to stick together to make sense of it all. Thanks so much for all your brilliant emails. I hope all of those who asked for the labels for the books got them. So what a Christmas they've all got to look forward to, those who received the book with a message from me, and that's their Christmas sorted in their bubble. But thanks, all of you, for tuning in. Do review it on iTunes. Apparently, that makes a difference. Only only if you like it. Please don't otherwise. Apparently, it becomes more prominent in ways I don't understand if it gets reviewed. And um, see you all at the beginning of 2021, where we will have so much to dissect, and as I said, to make sense of together. And thanks, all of you who tuned in to the last streamed live rock and roll politics of the year last week. Uh, That was a great evening too. And there's another one coming up in January, which I'll tell you about the dates in King's Place. You can book tickets, but I'll tell you about that next time. Anyway, have a great Christmas in whatever bizarre circumstance you are in. I know the cliche is to say keep safe, so keep safe. And let's all get together very soon. Keep those emails and questions coming and see you again in 2021. Happy Christmas.